You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, While We Wait, Exhortations from Second Thessalonians. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Let me ask you a question. What does a settled church look like? You may be wondering where that question comes from. It's obviously a question that contrasts what a well, it contrasts itself with a church that appears to be shaken. And I draw that from our current series called While We Wait. We're looking at Second Thessalonians, and if you recall in chapter two, Paul was concerned that the church there in Thessalonica was shaken by deceitful rumors, false teaching, reports that weren't true. He was concerned they were alarmed, emotionally distraught. And so he says, hey guys, I don't want you to be shaken. So he gives clear teaching about the end times. But as he closes the chapter, what I think Paul does is he draws a picture for us. He paints a portrait of what a settled church looks like. In other words, this is what it looks like to live a settled life. Yes, as a church, but I also think this, as an individual Christian. So take your Bibles, would you, and locate the last five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's enjoy this beautiful picture, which is in contrast to the first 12, by the way, of this chapter. Here are five verses that paint for us, not a picture of a shaken church, but a picture of a settled church. We're going to see exactly um, what it looks like and how we go about it. Uh, We'll walk through these verses. I'll take a few questions, not live. You can text them in. I'll take them and address them tomorrow or this week, either through video or through our blog. I won't have time this morning live in the service, but I want us to kind of take some time, if we can, though, and look at these verses, uh, and then we'll make some application at the end that I think will, will be very effective for us as we move forward. To begin, I want to show you these verses in our lab. Can I do that? Because I think a 30,000-foot view would help you before we dive in and go under the water. Let's take a plane ride first, can we? Let's see what this passage looks like from 30,000 feet. How are we going to arrive at our beliefs about this passage? First of all, I think there are really two sections here. One would be what I call a theological section. It's verses 13 through 15. Just circle those in your Bible. Uh, You might even say this is where our theology is rooted We'll explain what this means. And then there's a second section, 16 and 17. It's very doxological. Now, um, let me say this to you. These last two verses, I realize, are a petition. They are a prayer. I wouldn't deny that. He's asking the Lord to do some things. But I want to say to you, I'm very comfortable with the word doxology here because I don't think there's a doubt in Paul's mind that God would do that. So in one sense, he's praising God For what he knows he will do, and so he's asking God to do what he knows he will do. That's a good way to pray, isn't it? Pray based on God's promises because you know God will do it. So I'm not backing away that I think there's some doxology components in verse 16, as well as the fact that verse 13 begins with the idea of giving thanks to God. That's praise. But I don't want you to miss the fact that there is a sense of petition in verse 16 and 17. So I would say this. It's doxology, but it's petition and praise kind of wrapped together. So here's what we see. We might want to call this theology. Here's doxology. If you were to look at the title of our message, you might say this is Christ's calling. The last two verses are are, uh, uh, our commitment to that calling. 
Now, I'm going to show you some key words that I want you to recognize, Mark, and then we're going to put our, put our lab down. We're going to pick our Bibles up. We're going to kind of look at what these mean more, more intensely. Some things in the theology section that I want us to pay attention to today. First of all, it says that God chose us. It says that he called us. And it says that we will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think these are, are words that speak to the past action of God. You might want to know past the present action of God in calling us, and then the future action of God in glorifying us with Jesus. If you'll notice also, there's really only two imperatives in this uh, section. It's the word stand firm and the word hold to. So in light of all that God will do, by the way, you can see more of that even in the last two verses. It says He gave us eternal comfort. He loved us. He gave us... And then Paul says, would you comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word? So here's the green count is all what God's going to do for us. And yet out of all that God does, there are two imperative verbs, stand firm and hold to. And so, by the way, good theology needs both your hands and your feet. Amen. That's what's happening here. We're going to see this morning that, that the theology in 13 through 15 results in the doxology of 16 and 17. So just keep a kind of a 30,000-foot view for a bit. Let's dive into our text now for a bit, can we? Let's just see how this plays out a little better, word for word, kind of line by line in our text. Here's the theology in verses 13 through 15. I'll read it at one time for you, then we'll kind of examine it more closely. Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And I think the word but there could be the word now. Either way, it's a contrasting word with what happened in the previous part of the chapter where there were those who were perishing, there were those who were being deceived, they would be suffering eternal damnation because they didn't believe. But this is not true of these Thessalonian believers, and Paul is thankful for that. So he says, we give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So what is Paul uh, getting at in these verses that really hold a lot of theology? I think you can see in this simple outline here that what's addressed is who God is, what God did, how God did it, why God did it, and what we now do, or you could say what we now are. You see the phrase that Paul uses here, we're beloved by the Lord. So God is a God of love. The Lord is a loving Lord. And what did this loving Lord, this all-loving God do? Well, I want to focus on these three things just for a few extra moments this morning because I think it really constitutes the bulk of the theology in this, in this section. It says that there's something God did in the past. It says God chose us. In this text, of course, he's speaking to the Thessalonians, so he says God chose you. And then it says there's something he did in the present. He called them, and then there's something in the future. He's going to glorify them. What's going on there? These are all aspects of God's saving 
work in our life. Listen very carefully. I don't need you to disconnect here. I need you to keep your engines in uh, fifth gear, okay, overdrive. Because you're going to have some questions. You're going to have some doubts and and wonderings about, man, is that that really what it says? But you, you need to hear this good theology. Paul says here, something happened in the past, specifically those Thessalonian believers, but I think by application, obviously, to those who believe even now. It says that God chose you. He's speaking here of the doctrine of election. That God has a people for himself. It says here that he chose them, the next phrase is, as the first fruits to be saved. Now, the first fruits is an interesting translation. I think a better rendering would be God chose you from the beginning. These same words are often translated that way in other parts. Some see this perhaps when it says the first fruits as maybe a reference to they were the first believers in that part of the world. Uh, I mean, that, that may be true historically, but I think textually uh, is speaking here of the, of the time frame of God's choosing. And I'll show you some other verses in a minute that would um, kind of go along with that. But here's this idea, this concept, this doctrine that God chooses people. Election is called. Let's just talk about that for a bit. Because it says here this is that God chose them to be saved. Which means you didn't choose to be saved. <laughs> Did you respond and were saved? Yes, hallelujah. But God chose you to be saved. Now let's talk about that election. Because probably right now, even in your mind, you're like, man, Todd, you are, you're getting me kind of riled up here. Election is, some one of, is one of those subjects that folks can, in the church, you know, there can be different angles and sides. Here's something I've learned over some years. That it would be heretical. It would be heretical for me to deny the doctrine of election. It is clearly taught in the Bible. It's stated. It's illustrated. So the question is, what do we believe about the doctrine of election, right? Here's where I've, I've come. I believe that the crux of the issue is on what basis does God make his choosing? And from what I've experienced and what I've learned by watching, that's where most really godly people who divide, they divide over that issue. On what basis does God make his decision? They don't deny that God chooses that there is a people God is gathering to his name. You see that from script, in the scripture from beginning to end. The question is then, on what basis does God do that? I believe it is God's sovereign choice. So I would be one that would hold to unconditional election. That God in his own sovereign will and in his power and mind and by his grace, he chooses a people for himself. And he will redeem all of those people without fail. Every single one of them. So, so I want to make sure that you understand something here. We aren't going to argue about, is election biblical? It's in there, amen? What we might could do is discuss, debate, argue. I wouldn't argue with you. You wouldn't argue with me, right? We might can converse about, okay then, how does election play out and. and And on what basis does God then choose his people? But let's be clear on something. As the sovereign creator of the universe, God has chosen a people for himself. And he is in the process of sovereignly redeeming every single one of them. And at the end of time, 
every single one will be gathered on the throne from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. That will happen. I want to share with you a few verses that I think lean into this. The, the, the proof, the fact that God chose a people, which is what he says here, right? God chose you. Here's what Jesus said about this very doctrine, this principle. It's John 17, his high priestly prayer. Notice how Jesus affirms and gives testimony to the fact that God has a people that he is to redeem. Here's this verse that says that Christ uh, lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So theologically, I need you to keep your, keep your uh, brains on. God the Father has chosen a people. God the Son redeems that people. Acts 20, 28 says that he has given his blood for them. That's how he purchased a people unto himself. And these very people that God chose and that the Son redeemed are the ones the Holy Spirit now indwells. By the way, in our verses here in 2 Thessalonians, you find a reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is not a message on election. It's not designed to get into all the different, I'll call them rabbit trails. I just want to make sure you understand something. As a church, we believe the Bible teaches that God has chosen a people for himself and that the role of God the Son was to purchase every single one of them and redeem them for God's glory. How does that happen? He explains further how they are saved once they're chosen, so to speak. He says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, I don't believe this is a reference to sanctification after salvation. Could it be? Possibly. Smarter minds than me can can figure that out. I believe this is actually a reference to the Spirit's work of setting apart the person that God has chosen and regenerating them so that they believe the truth. Because you would never believe the truth if God did not regenerate your heart and open your eyes to do exactly that. You realize that the Bible calls repentance an actual gift? And Paul even said we should pray that God would grant repentance to those who don't believe. So how do people repent? How do they believe? The Spirit moves upon them. The Spirit sets them apart. God shows them the Spirit sets them apart, moves upon them, and they believe the truth. This is really the process of how people are saved. Now, let me just kind of keep coming at you here. Make some good notes here. In theological circles, this is called the order of salvation. In Latin, it's called order salutis. But I don't know Latin. I just look smart for a moment, okay? Just write this down. Order of salvation. I would trust you to Google order of salvation. Because you'll find several good articles, and and there may be some weird ones, but for the most part, you can recognize, I think, anything by Wayne Grudem is going to be trustworthy. Uh, Anything by Chris Eller will be trustworthy. You'll find them all over Google, right? So if you see those and click them, the order of salvation really describes the nine things that happen in the millisecond God saves someone. It begins with this idea of election, predestination. It ends with glorification. We'll cover that in a minute. I would encourage you, Before you balk at some of these things, study God's word. Read those who have spent a lot of time studying God's word and and realize that the Bible teaches God chose a people to himself. 
He saves them by his spirit and the preaching of the gospel. And when they hear that, the spirit empowers them to believe and they're saved. Let me show you an example of this. We know Jesus affirmed this, right? We saw Jesus actually say clearly, the hour's come for me to actually do what you've asked me to do, redeem the people you've given me. Here's this played out in the church's history. Here's Acts chapter 13. I think this is about verse 48. Look how this is a practical illustration of what we just read. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. So you can debate, but I don't think your issue's with me. You need to wrestle with God. If you think that God has not chosen a people unto himself, I think you should take that with God because the scriptures seem pretty clear. There's an action in the past from before the foundation of the world of God sovereignly and rightfully choosing his people and then sending his son to actually redeem and purchase every one of them. And then throughout history, what we see happening is those who are appointed to eternal life believing. Here's one more verse that's in the book of Ephesians. Paul, again, he just, uh, in an epistle, teaches this. He says that, Blessed be God and Father of our our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, say it with me, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there's some pretty blatant, explicit doctrinal teaching there. He's chosen us that we should be holy and blameless before him. Look at this next phrase. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Sounds like 2 Thessalonians. A loving father choosing to save us. He did this according to the purpose of his will. And so for that reason, by the way, I do believe in an unconditional election. It is God's sovereign grace and his will alone that calls people. This is done to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So whether it's the words of Jesus, the illustration of the church, the teaching of Paul, we find really strong evidence that this phrase, which might trouble you in 2 Thessalonians, that God chose us to be saved, is actually a very strong biblical doctrine. It's called election. And it happens when the Spirit moves upon a person's heart and they believe the truth of the gospel. That's exactly what verse 14 says next. If verse 13 describes what God did, this is the verse that describes how God does it. This is the part of the equation I get, okay? I'm way too finite, and I'm not near smart enough to get verse 13, except from a theological perspective. I can tell you what I think it means and says doctrinally, but do I understand how it works? I don't. I mean, you're talking about concepts that are gloriously beyond my, my thinking ability, but I get verse 14. To this, speaking of the idea of being saved, by the way, in verse 13, That's the antecedent. To this he called you through our gospel. So this is when the Holy Spirit moves upon people and gives them the faith and repentance to believe. It's when they hear the gospel. This is why, church, listen very carefully. I hope it doesn't ring too much. I hope it don't get too loud. But listen very carefully. As an electionist, I'm also a fervent evangelist. Why? Because this is a preaching of the gospel that is the ordained means by which God saves his people. Does that make sense? It's the truth, the good news about Jesus. And so we preach the gospel. 
and we long and we pray for people to be saved. Do we think it's because we're preaching? That's why they get saved, because we're persuasive? Not at all, because of a good presentation? No. In fact, I'm beginning to dislike more and more the phrase presentation of the gospel. Like it's some lecture, some PowerPoint deal. You know, like, hey, here's three things, here's four things, and if you just kind of mentally assent to them, you'll be good, man. No fire, streets of gold, you'll be safe. Like, is it really just like a presentation? No. Listen, church, the gospel is not a presentation. The gospel is a divine operation in which God brings dead people to life. The gospel is a resurrection. It's not some explanation of, of simple good ideas that come from God. If you believe them, you're probably better off. Thumbs up to you. Man, the gospel is a supernatural divine operation orchestrated by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in which he takes totally dead people who could not believe and says, I'm going to bring you to life through the preaching of my son. They hear the message and suddenly their eyes are open and they believe when folks around them think, man, I didn't think he'd ever get saved. Yeah, because God raises dead people to life through the preaching of the gospel. Which is why I say to you, And I'll maintain this until she puts me in the ground. The best and most fervent witnesses are those who hold to strong um, teachings about God's sovereign election. You know why? Because I don't preach with some hope that people will get saved. I preach knowing that God will do exactly that in his time. Man, you talk about confidence. That's why every single week... God just fills me with passion for his word. Because he's going to do what only he can do. He's going to save people. Amen? He's going to sanctify his church. So if you think for a moment that believing in election, that God chose us, he has a people to himself, makes you like some, you know, slow, apathetic, we don't care to witness. I mean, you have misunderstood the teaching of the Bible. Romans 9, 10, and 11 go together beautifully. We are the ones who have made them enemies. Did you know that? Nowhere in the Bible is God's sovereignty and our responsibility a problem. They don't need your reconciling. They're already friends. But sometimes in our teaching and sometimes in our understanding, we think, well, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Of course it doesn't. You're not God. It doesn't make sense to me either. Instead, we embrace what's clearly taught, that God has chosen a people to himself. And yet he accomplishes this, this ingathering of them through the preaching of the gospel, which is done through the means of the human voice. This is what God is doing currently. Why? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the future aspect of our salvation. I won't spend long here except to say this. This isn't saying that we're not completely and fully saved currently. It's simply to say this, that you haven't received the full, visible end result of your salvation. And all of you would agree with that, because look where you're sitting. It's better than it used to be, but it's still in a warehouse, amen? But one day, Christ is going to appear, or you're going to die, and you'll be with the Lord. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then, the Bible says, you'll receive the end of the salvation of your souls. It doesn't mean you're not fully saved. God will keep you from stumbling, Jude says, right? But it is a journey, and we're headed home, so to speak. 
to a city whose builder and maker is God. So this is the end of our salvation. I think a good reference for this would also be First Thessalonians, excuse me, Second Thessalonians 1, in which he talks about how when Christ comes, he'll be marveled at among the saints. So there is a day coming in which you will be with Christ and the glory he receives, you will share with him. Here's some verses to kind of prove that point. We'll skip, uh, there were someone's in the call. Let's go to the verses about uh, the glorification that's ahead for us. Here's Romans chapter 8, I think it's verses 16 to 17. That the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then heirs. And if we're heirs of God, then we're fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, we will share with him what? We'll share his glory with him, provided we suffer with him. And I would not be too quick to take one of those without the other. Americans love the glory part. But Paul says here, provided you suffer with him. And if you confess him before men, he'll confess you before his father. So there's a sense in which God's going to glorify Jesus and we'll share in that. Here's Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Notice how in this verse, or this set of verses, not only does he talk about the glory that we'll share, but he mentions several of these very same concepts that he listed here to the second, in 2 second Thessalonians. Watch, this, watch these two verses. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Catch that? And those whom he called, he what? Also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Here is your life in a nutshell. (laughs) God chose you. God called you. There's a lot to say about each of these. I'm just giving you the, the nut graph out of it. Of it. Then, then God's sanctifying you, and God will one day glorify you. Now, now watch this, church. If you see that happening, wouldn't you say what Paul said? Man, we ought to always give thanks to God for you. Why? Because you're not under the eternal condemnation or the ones perishing under destruction. Instead, Man, God chose you. God has called you to be saved, and one day God's going to glorify you. Wow, we give thanks to God for you. Amen? Who wouldn't give thanks to God when they're watching that play out in their church? I could think of, there's so many of you that I could say, this is just like your story. And I hesitate to mention names, but one that came to mind this week, I just think about Brad's story. Brad Miller, one of our elders. Uh, lost, an adult, working a job, seeking to be a millionaire by the time he was 30. And just his life was just going the wrong direction. Ended up in jail from alcohol issues. And while he was in jail, God began to convict his heart. The Holy Spirit began to set Brad apart and work him over. He picked up a Bible. So I wonder what this book says about my life right now was interested, was curious, was thirsty. He read another book while he was in jail. He got out of jail. He began to seek someone out who knew about Christianity. That person invited him to a Promise Keepers conference. And while he was there, he heard the gospel for the very first time. And the power of the Spirit moved upon Brad. And Brad said, I believe Jesus Christ will save me. 
and he trusted Christ. Now, did Brad get saved at that moment? I don't know. Did Brad get saved a few weeks earlier in the jail? I don't know. We could debate that. I think Brad kind of pinpoints that promise keeper's conference as the time he got saved. But when did God say, Brad, now's the time I'm going to draw you to myself and show you that I've chosen you. I'm going to call you. One day I'll glorify you. And that whole thing, it was clear. Brad wasn't chasing after God, amen? But God showed up and brought Brad all the way to himself. This is the work of God. This is why salvation is a is, a, is a, an act, a process that solely and wholly belongs to God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We bring nothing to the cross. You bring only all the ways in which you have violated God. I bring only a, a strong, long list that is putrid in God's nostrils whether you're self-righteous or blatantly wicked, the best you can do stinks to God. So what do we do? We fall on the mercy and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then God reveals, I've chosen you. I've called you. You heard the gospel, you believed. I'll glorify you. And suddenly we give thanks to God for his miraculous work in our lives. One more story just to kind of accent the point that God owns every bit of salvation. I was just reading this past week uh, a letter from our president of the International Mission Board. He just returned from Southeast Asia where he met with one of our IMB missionaries who reported to him firsthand that he had been discipling a Southeast Asia believer who was going to take the gospel into a very remote village for the very first time. No one in the village had ever heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, never seen a Christian, but this Southeast Asian had become a Christian by God's grace, had been discipled by an IMB trained worker. And so as he went to the village, he began to talk about the Lord and the gospel. And so some of them were curious about this other God. So they brought all of their idols and their trappings about their false religion to the town center, the village center, and they begin to pile them up. They're going to burn them. And they weren't believers yet, but they were just curious, like, hey, this is another God. We don't want to make him mad too, right? A day before they were going to burn all of their idolatrous um, trappings, the village chief dies. And I've got the article. I can share it with you if you want it. Uh, David Platt says that they laid the chief kind of out in the, in the village center and they begin to kind of come together and mourn for him. And so the Southeast Asian believer attends that and he goes. He's like, I want to be there, be with these people. None of them believe. And so he's praying during this kind of mourning time for this village because what they did was they felt like the demons and the other gods killed their chief because they had kind of gotten rid of their idols. So they went back to the pile and get all their idols they're taking them back home. Like, hey, we don't want to make the, the little G gods mad, right? And so he feels like, man, this is not a good situation. He goes through the morning. He's praying out loud. God, show your glory in this place. God, manifest your glory for the sake of these people. And at that moment, Platt reports that the man who was on the stone table-like structure coughs and raises up. So the village thinks he's resurrected. 
Now, in the report to the executive committee, David Platt says, I don't know if it was a seizure, if he had passed out for a day. He says, I'm not here trying to figure out the medical aspect. All I know is God sure knew a good time to make that man cough. Amen? He said that the man coughed, raised up, and they all looked to the Southeast Asian believer and said, what's happening? And so he says, well, it's probably a sign that you should hear the news about Jesus. He shares the gospel, and many of them come to faith. They take their stuff back to the burn pile. Amen? And you say, well, Todd, how does that work? Because God completely and solely owns salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith. So knowing that, look at verse 15. We stand firm and hold to the traditions that we were taught. He tells this to those believers. Whether we spoke them to you or we wrote them to you. And I believe it's what's contained in this letter as well as the previous letter. There may be some things that were orally given as well that Paul references. But I think this is a reference to those, those uh, doctrines that concern the truth about Christ and the Lord and the Holy Spirit and how God saves people. He's saying you stand firm and hold to this. Why? Because this is how God does his work. This is his calling. What's our commitment? That we would stand firm and hold to. By the way, by implication, the idea of standing firm and holding to includes the thought that this, would, this is going to be difficult. Some of the background of the word stand firm is that of endurance and perseverance. Holding to implies a, a fastened grip, meaning that by necessity, you, you shouldn't let go. It'll be hard to hold on to it. So, so I just need to make sure you understand something. There will be consequences to your exclusive understanding of the gospel and the way in which God saves people. But don't you dare let go. Please, don't move. Stand firm and hold to. Amen, church? I believe you will. I'm confident you will. So upon this theology, Paul then says in verses 16 and 17, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may comfort your hearts and establish them. And by the way, why wouldn't God do that if he did what he said in 13 through 15? Amen? <laughs> if he has chosen you, if he's called you, if he's going to save you to obtain the glory of Christ, guess what? He will definitely comfort you and establish you. Some, notice, some thoughts about these last two verses just briefly. Notice how they are similar in some way to verses 13 through 15. In fact, I'll show you just a, a quick picture of, of the thoughts in these two verses. Again, we'll see something about who God is. We see some things about what he's done. We see some things about how he did it. And we see some things about what that does to us, either who we are or what we do. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I don't want to say it's a repeat, but Paul here is in one sense giving us theology, and then he's giving us the same thing in doxology form. Verse, 18 would speak, excuse me, verse 16 would speak to us of the source of everything that God does. It's himself. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Then it says he loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. This comfort is the word used for the Holy Spirit. And it's meant here as everlasting consolation. It won't run out. 
The idea of good hope is a cultural word, by the way. It's like if I were to say to, to Jim over here, Jim, you're going to have a good afterlife. He would know what I mean. The phrase good hope here was actually a very cultural word. I think Paul here is saying to the Thessalonians, I know how your culture speaks. I know the words they use. And by the way, you've got good hope. But what's this here? You've got it through grace. And by the way, if you want to know what grace is, grace is everything talked about in 13 through 15 that God, listen, church, listen. Grace is that God would choose you, call you, and save you though you've done nothing to deserve any of that. You and I have no merit. My address, your bank account, our jobs, our names, they bring us nothing before God, but grace affords us everything. Hallelujah. Wow. And so it is this God who has given us eternal comfort, good hope. And it says he will comfort and establish our hearts in every good work. I think when he talks about comforting the heart, it's an inner work. And then the idea of establishing them for their good work and word is kind of the outer work. So he speaks here to the inside action going on, that internal thing, being shown by how we speak and how we live. Let me show you one last thing about these two verses. In these two verses... I've told you before, this is a petition. I don't want to escape the fact that it is a prayer, but I'm pretty sold that there's a doxological component that what Paul's doing is this. I'm praying that God will comfort your hearts and establish them, but I'm confident he will because that's the kind of God he is. And so he's praising God for what he knows God will do. Now, is that seen somewhere else in Scripture? Does Paul ever actually make a prayer request that actually seems like something he's saying will happen. Well, in the previous epistle, in the previous epistle is exactly what he does in chapter 5. Look at these verses here. I'll show them to you. Here's the very same concept. In fact, if you were to take the verbs in this verse and compare them to the verbs in 2 Thessalonians, they'd be the exact same tense, uh, mood, everything. It's called the optative mode. It just simply means that it's not an imperative. But yet... These words are in the same as the verbs in this chapter. And notice what this says about Christ's work, about God's work. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Is anybody here doubting that God will do that? Do not say yes to that question. If so, talk to me later, right? So yet the, the verb sanctifies in the same tense as the ones in 2 Thessalonians. Is it, is it a request? Yes. But do we really think God won't do that? He will. So it's this, it's this praise to God kind of wrapped around some petitions. We, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will do those things. And yet Paul is asking God to do those things. It's the same idea here. That's why I'm, I'm just really sold. I'm, I'm, I'm confident. There is more going on here than just a prayer request. This is a praise to God for what he will do. And so we pray to that end. So there's the theology. There's the doxology. Can we put it into a single sentence? Can we try to wrap some handles around this to get, a, get an idea of what's happening here? Here's how I'd say it to you. Read with me, but don't read the parts in parentheses. Just read the other words together. A settled church, in contrast to a shaken church is a church rooted in the work of God and responding in glad obedience through the power of God. 
Remember, this is the picture of a church in contrast to what Paul was worried would happen to them. They'd be shaken, alarmed. He says, no, 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 no. Here's the clarity of the end times. Now let that settle you. Don't worry. God's chosen you. He's called you. He's going to glorify you. Now, now, man, go and show a life of praise to him, and he'll comfort your hearts. He'll establish you. Just be settled. And so we settle ourselves on right, good theology, knowing that that will in turn breed right doxology, a life of praise to God. Let me give you briefly two applications from this. You'll find in your study guide, okay? I want to just give them to you very briefly, then we'll end this time. Because when you read this, you may think, well, um, you know, what next or what now? How does this correct thinking and theology show up? I would just say to you two things. Embrace learning doctrine deep down. Number two, enjoy watching doctrine show up. I'll say them again to you. They're in your study guide. You can reference them there. But embrace learning doctrine deep down. And then enjoy watching doctrine show up. Now let me just lean on the men here for a minute. You ready? Guys, if you're not sure that you buy all this, if you're thinking, Todd, you said things I'm not sure I agree with. I'm not sure I, I understand even these concepts of election and before the foundation of the world and how the Holy Spirit regenerates people and then they are, their eyes are open because they're regenerated. They can then believe the truth when it's presented. And it's, well, Todd, can I just encourage you? Get with an, a man who may be a little further down the road. Let's get some good books. Go by the church library. Make sure you're in a small group. And men, learn your doctrine. We may find that you disagree on how it's worded. We may have some different angles to certain things. I can live with that. Here's what I don't want the men in our church to say. Well, that's my wife's job. Men, I lean on you, and I'm pressing on you for a minute. Dig into God's word. Learn doctrine. Your family will benefit greatly. Talk about it at dinner. Mention it when you pray. Ask your kids really tough questions and let them answer. Even if they're out in left field, just let them answer and talk to you. That's how we learn. But know what you believe and lead your family well. I've heard dads say this before. Well, my kids have got to own their own faith. I would agree with that to a degree. Do you know that? I agree with that to a degree. Here's where I don't agree. I don't think it's wise or even responsible to say, Hey, kid, yeah, own your own faith, and so take your pick from all these that I don't even understand. Man, I would, I would make sure I knew what I believed and taught it. And do they need to own it? Yes, but I don't want to give my kid an empty plate to own. So here's a full plate of everything we believe and what we hold to. Here's how I've lived it out. Here's how I've taught it to you. Yeah, you've got to own it. But man, hey, dads, man, fill that plate up well. Amen? So I want to encourage the dads here. If you're, if you're just not sure you kind of get all this, don't leave and say, well, she'll get it. I want to challenge you. Embrace learning doctrine deep down. Our library's got lots of really good books on these subjects. 
A good one I, that I would recommend is called Chosen for Life. I've got it down front here. It's by Sam Storms. He's one of my favorite authors. He will walk you through the issue and doctrine of election in a way that I think is really good. He talks about the different objections, the different counterpoints. It's a good book. I have others I can recommend on other issues. I'm just saying this to you. Embrace learning doctrine deep down. Here's why. So that when doctrine shows up in someone's life, you can, you can recognize it and glorify God. All right? We can praise together when God does his work in the lives of people. One last counterintuitive observation, then we'll be done. Because this picture we've shown of a settled church, we could all say, amen, we'd all like this. But here's the odd, here's the odd reality. You don't know you're settled until Satan tries to shake you. Now, that doesn't mean that you should doubt God's work in your life. And can you believe that you're settled? And, and uh, Yes, you can. But let's just be really pragmatically frank here. It's in the trials that you find out what you're made of. Could somebody say amen to that? It's when your back's against the wall and you're cornered that you suddenly find out, do I really believe this? And you've had your days in which you stared out your living room window and you wondered, man, how did this go south so quickly? (laughs) How did I get in this mess? What happened here? I thought you said this, God, and I thought you were in control and you probably... You ever had those moments? Sure you have. At different levels. But there's that place in your home or your life you go to and, and you're like, man, what is going on here? Can I say to you this? By experience and by God's word, it is not what you think or feel at those moments that will settle you. It is what you know. And what do you know? It's your theology that undergirds and settles your heart in the moments when you feel like, wow, is any of this even true? (laughs) What happened here? So that's why I say to you guys, I don't know if you really know you're settled until Satan tries to shake you. You're a fool if you wait till that day to get settled. Instead, man, let's thank God for all the ways he works in us and let's praise him for his incredible sovereign activity on our behalf. So that when we are shaken, we will stay settled. This is exactly what the Day family found out a year ago this weekend. They come to, they come to the 830 service, so they're not here right now. They sat right over here this morning. But it was a year ago this weekend that their son Ryan was killed. I think he was 20, 21-ish in that range. Just out four-wheeling. He crashes. Just horrific situation, but Jace is holding his son, and his son dies in his arms. We were seeing some partners in Jamaica. Our staff did a tremendously beautiful job here of handling that. We get back to the funeral, go to Texas with them, and the story, you probably watched it unfold. 
Um, yeah, when Satan tries to shake you, that's when you find out if you're settled. In the last year, I've had a number of good talks with Jace. In one of those talks, he said, Todd, I never knew what I believed was so true and held me so deeply until this occurred. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, I, I don't know what they're going through, but he talks about, you know, questions and, you know, pain that's there every single day. What ifs and how comes. And yet every day he gets up, he puts his trust in God that one day he will see Ryan again. Not because of what he feels, not because of what he thinks, but because of what he knows. The truth of the gospel that God has called a people to himself, has saved them, and one day will glorify them together. And so he is banking that God will keep his word. Amen? As the band joins me and gets ready, we were discussing that one morning, and he mentioned a song to me. He said, you know, one of the things I like about this song is that it reminds me that this is not the end. So I went home, and I looked up that song. You know it, by the way. It's the song, Because He Lives. It's an older song. I found out this morning, it's the fourth most well-known song in America. Did you know that? <laughs> Written in the early 70s. But I looked at the words and I thought, no wonder Jace likes this song. Because all of the things that it talks about are rooted in the theology of Christ's life. In fact, here's some of the words. Jonathan's going to begin playing in a moment. We'll sing it together just for a little bit. But because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. It's not because you are good or, or you have, you know, done something. It's because Christ lives. It's the truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth living. Watch this. Life is worth living because of my job, the bank account, my car. No, no, no. For some people, every day they get up, they're reminded of a pain that never goes away. Of a hole from a human perspective that will never be filled. A child will never come home. A spouse, a loved one that will never return. A situation they'll never fix. But why do they get up and keep living? Because he lives. Amen? See, that's our theology affecting our doxology.